From Relay FM, this is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode number 31, hard to believe, for November 15th, 2022. I am your master of ceremonies, Jason Snell, and joined as always by Julia Alexander, Director of Strategy at Parrot Analytics. Hi, Julia. Hey, Jason. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? It's cold. I'm cold. It's like, it finally, you know what? It finally became cold in New York, and it's like mid-November, so I can't complain. But now it's cold. Yeah, I know that yeah. it, it happens that way, right? <laughs> who would have thunk gonna, it? Who would have thunk it? I'm going to start with some um, sort of follow out. Uh, and it's it, it's probably not a link that most people are going to be able to go to because it's a subscriber only link. But uh, my old pal, Tim Goodman from uh, Hollywood Reporter, San Francisco Chronicle now has a Substack. Uh, oh, and Tim and I did the TV Talk Machine podcast for a billion years. Um, he has a Substack, and he wrote a piece that was funny because it's the stuff that I've talked to him about for years, and that you and I have talked about a little bit. So you know, maybe t- check out Tim's Substack. Uh, but he wrote a piece on November 9th called "The Trouble with Netflix," and it it almost reduced me to tears because it's him walking through the Netflix interface and all the things that the Netflix algorithm and Netflix's curation is trying to push to him while he's trying to find his shows that he wants to watch and he he literally does the work and i i thought this was so brilliant of going through each individual item and being like <laughs> saw this uh nope <laughs> um already watching this why is it here and like just like trying to gauge brutally the relevancy of all of the tiles that netflix puts up to try and get you to watch something and it was quite a I wish it was public. I should talk to Tim and see if I can get him to unlock it. Uh, I wish it was public because it is so amazing as a takedown of, uh, you know, they talk a good game about their, their mm-hmm. curation and their relevance and, and their algorithms and all of that. But uh, from Tim's perspective, it's basically a lot of junk that isn't helpful at all. And yeah. that's, uh, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Like, I think the emperor's, maybe the emperor's wearing a thong or something, but there's almost no clothes on the emperor <laughs> When it comes to this stuff. And we had a similar story about Apple, which is beta testing a new kind of like featured thing that pushes down the what you're watching on Apple TV below the fold so that they can have another curated area up there. And I made the point on another podcast that I think there's also this impression that all of this stuff from big tech companies is this brilliant algorithmically generated personalized stuff. And it's not like it's very clear that the thing Apple's testing is just somebody in a cube somewhere who put a list of 10 things together that they want to promote and i know somebody who does that i know actually somebody who does that for microsoft for their xbox uh store so like it's a person and it's a good person but like it's not personalized it's not connected to your viewing history if they're recommending a show you've already watched it just stays there even though you've already seen it and it's not doing any good like uh, anyway i i reading tim's thing i just i I had to laugh because it's yeah can I just say who's exceptionally good at this? And and they're not a traditional streaming service, but I've wanted to write about this for so long about um, how good YouTube TV is at recommending channels, uh, sorry, recommending specific channels at different points during the day. So mm. if you open up YouTube TV in the morning, I'll use myself as an example. When I open up YouTube TV in the morning, it's always like CNBC is recommended. It's like Good Morning America. If I open it up at noon, it's like CNN. And if I open it up at the at the end of the night or whatever, it's like ESPN or whatever it is. And it just knows your yeah. habits. And it's like, hey, here's what we'd recommend. And then also here's other channels that like are tangentially related based on what you're viewing. And it's so lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Although I I will say that the other piece of signal that you get if you're a uh like a VMPVD instead of a 
uh, regular streaming service is they have like live signal of who's watching what live right then. Yeah. Like how, how DirecTV used to do that too. I assume still does, but I don't have it anymore. And so sometimes I see that on Fubo as well. And I, I kind of assume that what's happening there is that they are dynamically building a, I don't know if it's about what I want to watch as much as it is about like, what are people watching right now? Which is actually not a bad, like when sports are going on, it's actually a really good proxy because if, if everybody's watching this baseball game or this tennis match or whatever, this golf game, then, uh, it's not a golf game. It's a golf tournament. Anyway, I don't know. I don't watch golf. Uh, then that's, you, you probably will be too. Cause like everybody else who's turning on this app. <laughs> That's well, what they're doing. Well, it's interesting because Kevin – so we have different profiles on YouTube TV and Kevin's profile in the morning recommends Get Up, which is like a great show. It's on ESPN. I love it. I love it. But his recommends that first and my profile recommends CNBC. And it's kind of like, oh, yeah, this is what you're watching. And to your point, Jason, like this is probably what other people are watching. But like here's what we know you're interested in at this point. And my big prediction – and we'll move on from this, uh, I promise. But my big prediction is the biggest – pivot that streaming makes in the next three to four years is back to live it's a lot of focus on live because you know what's nice about it you don't think you open it up they recommend something you hit play it plays you don't just start from anything it's just there that's the um i know we've talked about one of the things that's always impressed me about uh peacock's launch and again it's cable town right like they have they have tv in their blood um but peacock has had these faux linear live stream things that are basically playlists but the point is that you just drop in and there's something there's not you don't always i think i think we've gone the too far to the other side right which is like when everything is on demand everything becomes this tyranny of choice and it's one thing if there's a show you want to watch right now like uh to put it in the tivo era Sometimes when you turn on the TiVo, you want to go to your now playing and a show you've recorded. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you just want to go to live TV and the streaming services are all like everything is a now playing. And and now the pendulum is swinging back to sometimes you don't want that. Sometimes you don't know you don't have something queued up. You just want to watch something or feel something or have something on while you're cooking. And I think, yeah, I I am with you. I think that there's going to be a real. uh, that's like the next phase in a lot of these streaming services is is what do how do we serve those people who just want to watch something right now right mm-hmm. um anyway people can check out tim's substack uh i would love to do a podcast with him sometime but he's uh you know he's focusing on substack right now he's a busy guy uh, but I would love to get him on a podcast to just complain about netflix sometime that would be hilarious maybe we'll that'd be great here. i don't know i'll ask yeah. him um Disney. I wanted to talk about Disney. Disney's results. There are results out for Disney and Warner Brothers Discovery. And again, this is not a show about the corporate machinations of companies that are in entertainment, except it sort of is, but sort of not. Um, And and so I I wanted to start with what it all means that these results have come out. Right. Because I think that's more interesting. Yeah. Um, Disney. And I, uh, I'll also point while well, I'm pointing people to other sources, a uh, really great piece uh, in Joe Adalian's newsletter, Buffering, which is from Vulture. People can go to Vulture to sign up for it. Uh, you don't have to pay for, for it. It's a free newsletter. Um, it's really good. 
um, about Disney. And he walks through a story that we've been telling here as well, which is step one is, hey, remember when everybody is desperate to get into streaming from nothing and Disney made these claims that they were going to increase their their uh, direct consumer uh, business by some huge amount and have so many people um, giving them money directly. Um and uh, that was an era. <laughs> and and so you look at these results in terms of that era, and it's really great. Like, there are a lot of streaming services that are not growing very much at all. And Disney's streaming services are growing a lot. Like, they, they added 12 million subs, um, up 2 million in the U.S. Uh, like, really great job of getting people on their platform. However, with that bad Netflix quarter that happened... Uh, three or four months ago now wall street really wants to has pivoted to okay that's great but where's the money are you gonna make money and disney lost one and a half billion dollars on that business so it's this really interesting uh and and so joe walked through the whole story in a way that i thought was really good of like (laughs) the, the it makes sense it all makes sense but it's like let's remember that that they're executing on this goal while starting to execute on the next goal and they have let's give them some credit that disney has made streaming services that people want and that's great but the next step is they got to make a profit from it mm-hmm. and that is not you know and 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 bob chapek said uh that that'll happen soon it's going to happen soon and they've raised their prices and all of that but it's it's just i think it's worth having that moment to say you do have to admire disney they did it like 2 years ago it was like eh, how's this going to go with the streaming services and it's like no they've done really well at getting people to pay for their services yeah, and let's also be very clear, the reality that exists and the reality the stock market perpetuates is not often re- correlated. Uh, it doesn't always make sense. So this happened, you know, Disney had a not terrible earnings, not great earnings, but it was not terrible. They actually had a huge year in theme parks, like it was, or sorry, a huge quarter with parks. They had a, a great quarter in terms of um, uh, some some studio stuff. Like it was, it was a decent quarter, you know, direct consumer had uh misses on both the bo- top line and bottom line you know they didn't bring in as much money as they did the quarter of the year prior or even the quarter before and they spent more money on it they they lost a t- uh, more money than the quarter before and the year and the year prior but this is not but, terrible and if you yeah. watched any of the stock happen where they fell like 20 billion dollars in market cap in the span of like 24 hours like none of that makes sense and it's it's everything that jason's saying is like they decided again the market decided three quarters ago, that they no longer cared about subscriber growth. They only care about what money you're making off it. And so the most important part of this earnings, that's what everyone's pointing to a DTC, is that their average revenue per user, the ARPU, went down across the board. They were losing money kind of on their, not losing money, but they were willing, they technically were, they're losing money on their subscribers. And the issue that I thought was a big point and that we've talked about in this podcast before is the way that Disney labels subscriptions means that they have all these things. So they have like 236 million subscriptions in play, right? But they triple count the bundle. And the bundle equates to 40% of their U.S. subscriber base. And their U.S. subscriber base, I think, equates to about 44% of the total Disney Plus base. So if you look at just the math on that, yeah, we don't know what the ARPU on that bundle is. We actually don't know how many users are actually using those streaming services, et cetera, et cetera. So the math gets really wonky. And so that's what gets the, that's what gets the street really worried is this idea that like okay Disney's adding all these subscribers and they're doing what they said they were going to do but are they actually making the money that would equate to that 
if we compare that to like a Netflix, if Netflix added all these subscribers and they were seeing this across the board, the ARPU on Netflix has actually gone up in the last quarter compared to going down for a lot of its competitors. And so this is kind of the conversation the street is seeing. What what it comes down to, I think, in the interest of our listeners is like, okay, who then is winning these streaming wars, right? Like, who who do we put the front of the line? Is it Disney with their 200 and whatever it might be, like subscriptions and the Disney Plus alone? And then you, you count in Hulu and ESPN Plus and whatever else it might be. And I think the answer is the fact that Disney has incredibly low churn, which means that the subscribers they are adding, they aren't losing. The fact that 40% of the U.S. subscriber base actually does want the bundle, which points to what their whole argument has always been, that if they offer that, then they can bring people in and continuously upsell and then and, and, and gain stronger ARPU. I think Disney's in a really good position. This is not a financial advice show. Never take anything as financial advice. But like I was like, I Disney stock like is at a good buying point. Again, that's not financial advice. Don't take it as financial advice. But it was like, I think this company is now underrated because the earnings were good. And the, it's a positive momentum on the streaming side. And they said they hit their peak cost. So we'll see. Yeah, I think you are right that they're undervalued. I think there was a panic. Like, it does seem like Netflix and 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 Joe Dalian mentioned this in his newsletter, which, again, I thought was really a good point that he made, which is um, everybody panicked about the Netflix number. And of course, the next Netflix number was way better, right? Like it was a single quarter of Netflix that made everybody go, oh, oh, no. And the, and the sky is falling and streaming and all of that. And, you know. I, I understand that there's a lot of value and a lot of the, the capitalist system and the, the, the uh, stock market and all that. Like there is an argument to be made that what you're, what it ends up rationalizing itself to a certain degree because it's about expectation. This is not an economics podcast. However, in my years of covering various businesses, I will say there is a level of irrationality in the stock market. That is not it is not the machine that it's often right. uh, supposed to be legendarily is it's not because just like anything else, you end up with kind of these uh, memes, old school memes, not new school memes, but the, these idea clouds that are like, oh, streaming is bad now and they linger. And they're based on sometimes evidence, sometimes not. Sometimes it's a single thing. And you end up with this kind of mob mentality where everybody's like, oh, we've cha- we've reset how we think of streaming now. And I think this Disney result and even the Netflix result is a good example of that, where why is it that that was the moment where we went from growth is what this is about to profit is what this is about? Because it seems to me like that might have been a little premature and that you're going to have streaming services that kind of flop now because they didn't get enough time to establish themselves where disney i think is not all right disney disney's going to come out of this just fine i think but well, it's also it, interesting yeah. just to look at it from and i realize that one is technically supposed to be a growth business and one is literally in the throes of being a decay business but it's funny when you look at the street's reaction to earnings releases for cable companies that are like we only lost eight hundred thousand customers and they're like yeah it's not bad it's not a million we, we're not terrible about it versus like Netflix or Disney or Disney is a great example. Disney only adds, you know, like 100,000 domestically in the last quarter. and Everyone f- loses their mind. And I get it. One's again, a growth business sector and one's a, a, literally a sector in decay. And so you kind of have different expectations set. But the idea that 
we look at a company like Disney with a pretty decent earnings report around, you know, like it's got some issues on DTC, sure, but everyone's cost in DTC is going to increase. If, you know, taking into account the state of the world, like taking into account the fact that, I mean, and this is where the other thing that comes in with Disney's earnings, and we'll, and this is actually a big point for Warner Brothers earnings as well as we get into them, WBD. The bigger issue is that the thing that all these companies could point to, right? So Netflix, Disney, they could say, we're going to launch this ad tier and that's going to help with our average revenue per user. It's going to help with our revenue overall. And that is true. That said, it comes at the same time that those same executives at the same companies are saying, listen, advertising, especially on TV, might take a big hit in 2023, depending on macroeconomic headwinds. That's my favorite um, phrase this this mm-hmm. quarter. If you hear it, you take a shot. Um, it's fun game. Uh, like when, when they say that all of a sudden the street's going, okay, so the advertising segment of this business, which you guys are just launching, which you have really strong connections to, if you're Disney, if you're Paramount, whoever you are, that's exciting. But what does the advertising industry look like to pe- compared to the cost of what you're spending on content and, and keeping these things operating and other acquisitions you might be wanting to make, even on the smaller side, on the tech side, like the ad tech side, like, what does that look like? And so that's kind of where I can see the street's frustration. I can see like, okay, like we, you're investing in all this and you are growing, but the revenue is not growing as fast as the subscriber base. And part of that is because you're offering discounted plans, you're, you're bundling and that's, that's hitting a bunch of things, what you're losing customers, whatever it might be. The, you know, so there's that's happening. You're the advertising revenue that you expected to maybe see in 2023 might be slowed down quite a bit. We don't actually know what's going to happen with cancellations or with streaming services because although like if we, if we look at the theatrical business, the theatrical business has typically been recession proof. It was good. Like if we think about the 20s and 30s, it was the thing people went to to go uh, escape in 2008 and 2002. Like these were the people still went to movies. Now the question is like, okay, if people no longer go to movies, are they watching streaming services at home? And how many streaming services are they keeping? So there's all these unknown variables that gets the street really concerned. And we get that. But the Disney reaction was just weird. Yeah, it, it, it's a it's a very strange thing. Also, I, I we're so tangential here, but I think this is all good stuff. I wanted to say that I think we're going to look back on this period, this five year period, and be super impressed with everything that's gone on here. Because as you were describing what's going on, I mean, the big picture here is that to use that metaphor while the plane is flying <laughs> they are taking it apart and putting it back together again because there's this is the that moment where like everything is shifting to streaming you've got your legacy business whether your legacy business is in the case of some of these companies uh, being a tv network and some of these companies like disney it's being a movie studio and but either way saying well we're going direct to consumer with streaming now that's what we're going to do and we've got to invest a huge amount of money in it and and that we're going to lose but we're going to get it back in people and then we're going to be able to build a business off of it and like right now it's all messy and they're all going through it but i think you're gonna and there will be some failures but if we look in a few years it's gonna be very impressive what's happened which is a lot of mostly like legacy businesses old businesses with established business models that they didn't want to upset for a very long time and then there came that moment where everybody looked at each other and was like oh i guess we got to do this now (laughs) and they will completely rebuild their business and make it into something very very different because of the internet essentially and like disney i i think what disney has done is incredibly admirable and i think they're much further along than uh almost anybody expected them to be including disney itself and yeah, I get that the street doesn't like that they're losing money and I get the Bob Chapek has to tell them, yeah, 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 we're going to we're going to get there. But and they don't get a 
you know, they don't get a pat on the head and a gold star from anybody, but I'm giving them a pat on the head and a gold star. I think that the, that uh, this is hard stuff to change your entire business model as a as a company that's been around for decades, many, many decades. Right. And and they're all going through it to varying degrees of success. But, um, you know, it's it's not easy. This is not obvious. It's really hard and it's really hard to change and it's hard to change company culture and it's hard to turn away from your sweet, sweet legacy business model. And yet they all know they have to do it eventually. So Well, and this is the other thing that we've talked about in this podcast. So I'll just spend 30 seconds on it. But, you know, that's, again, the other big thing. And, and it's funny that we all and by we, I mean, all the analysts and the executives and, and the researchers in the space we know this. And yet and we're surprised every time it comes up where everyone's like, the profit margins on streaming, first of all, don't exist if you're not Netflix. And two, in the next five years, aren't going to be the same as cable. And it's like, yeah, well, no, you know, SHIT, like, like, no, like, obviously, it is not going to be that. Like, the profit margins on cable are insane. They're like, yeah. they're like 25%. It's a wild profit margin. So, yes, if you are a shareholder or you're so, a, or an investor or you're someone on the street who covers these companies and you're going from, wow, they made a ton of money on broadcast and cable and now they're like making no money and there's like an idea that maybe they'll make money, but we actually don't know if they'll make money. I get the concern. I get that concern if you're covering NBC and Paramount and even to an extent Warner Brothers Discovery. The Disney side is like, I don't know, man, if you were to ask most people who they think are going to be okay in five years, Disney and Netflix are kind of like the two. And even Netflix is kind of no longer in that running. It's like basically Disney. You're like, yeah, well, Disney, you know, kids exist. So Disney does well. Marvel's still popular. Look at the numbers on Wakanda Forever, right? Like Avatar 2 is going to be the biggest movie uh, of the last decade. It's like, yeah, Disney, Disney's fine. And so it's always very funny when <laughs> when the street is like, Jim Cramer was out on CNBC on Squawk Box being like calling for Chapek's head for like 20 minutes. And I was like, the dude just signed a, re-signed his three-year contract. Now at Disney, that doesn't mean anything because we saw it happen with Peter Rice. But also, he's doing fine. Like it's it's it was so weird to see that vast disconnect from like decent ish, you know, like not great but not uh, uh terrible Disney earnings to like them losing twenty billion dollars in market cap in like a day it was just truly insane. Yeah. Well, yeah. Di- so Disney's fine. That's we, you heard it here first, everybody. Disney's gonna name be of this okay. podcast. Disney's fine. Yeah. Disney's fine um i did want to throw in a uh a related note about disney which is you wrote about hocus pocus too mm. um <laughs> so i think that that is uh something that we should talk about you basically you hocus pocus too and you're thinking like well, well they did you may not even know that they did it and it's a, a sequel to a an a old movie so i guess they call that a late late quill um <laughs> And they put it not in theaters, they just put it on streaming. And you wrote a piece in Puck that was basically like the Moneyball analysis of this, which is why this thing makes uh, so much sense to have done it the way they've done it. And I, I wanted to have you explain that to me. Yeah. So the TLDR <laughs> and this this uh, this newsletter did not go over well with theatrical exhibitors. Uh, this my argument, and I heard Sonny Bunch, who uh, is over at the Bulwark and has a great podcast. He and I, I was on his podcast and we were talking about this. And he had a great analogy that I'm going to use because I love it. And I wish I used it in the story. He said, in his opinion, that Hocus Pocus 2 felt like what the Adam Sandler movies are to Netflix. Which is, this is the type of movie that if I have this streaming service or for $8, $10, whatever it is, I'm going to sign up for to watch because I like the original 
I like the people in it. I think it might be fun. My family might be into it and it's great. And therefore, if you have the service, like if you're watching an Adam Sandler movie on Netflix or Hocus Pocus 2 on Disney Plus, in your mind, it is free, even though you're paying, you know, whatever monthly it is for it. That is far more likely going to happen in for those types of movies than getting people to go to a theater and watch that type of movie. And so the, what I, the argument I made in this puck piece is like, what is the quintessential streaming movie? Because we hit a point, the, the, the listeners will remember, 2020, right? No one's going to the theater anymore because COVID's happening. Then Tenet comes back and everyone's having this debate about like, should we go back to theaters? Should we not go to theaters? What does that look like? End of that year is when Warner Brothers announces they're going to do their day and date. They're going to just have all the movies premiere in theaters, but you can also watch it at home. And everyone yelled at Jason Klar, who's the former CEO of Warner Media, about this. I thought one makes decent sense. You're trying to grow HBO Max. You're likely not going to get a lot of people in theaters for the first half of the year. Why not do it? But two, it also collects data on people. I mean, yes, we can argue, we can argue that the data is, is flawed because it's in pre- unprecedented times and people are doing things that they wouldn't normally do. But you're collecting data on what types of movies people might turn on their streaming services for, might sign up for versus going to see something in theaters, right? And you really get that data in the latter half of 2021 as people are kind of going back to theaters and figuring this out. This brings us to, and everyone's doing this, right? Everyone's doing this kind of same, same thing. They started at Universal, kind of Universal Warner Brothers started it, and then everyone did it. Now we're in end of, almost end of 2022, and what has happened? The executives have shifted. So if you look at one end of the spectrum, you have Ted Sarandos at Netflix going like, why would we ever put things in theaters for 45 days? We are a streaming service business. That is where our audience is. On the other end of that spectrum, you have uh, David Zaslav at Warner Brothers Discovery, who says, why would we ever put something on streaming first? We're going to put things in movie theaters first. That's where we make the most of our revenue. In the middle, you have kind of a Jeff Shell at NBC Universal, who's like, most of our films are going to go to theaters because we see that after 45 days, they do better on Peacock if they do. But there are some things that we're going to bring to Peacock and there are some things that are going to go day and date like Halloween ends. Huge success for them. Then you have Bob Chapek and Disney, who are kind of the most experimental still, who kind of believe that franchises can be born out of streaming services, but also don't want to skip theaters because they have a huge theatrical business, but have also seen over the last decade what can happen with live action sequels if people aren't as interested. You look at something like the sequel to Alice in Wonderland, you'll get something um, even to like Cruella to an extent, and people are interested but they may not necessarily want to go out to theaters to watch it. And this is key to this co- to this conversation with Disney. Disney is a global theatrical business. Disney very, very rarely says we're going to release something theatrically in one country and not the other countries. They only do the opposite. When they have something on Disney Plus and Disney Plus is not available in a country, they go to theaters with it. And, that, and they do that in specific countries. So if we look at Hocus Pocus 2, one, it is not the type of movie that people are going to be rushing out to theaters to see. It is the type of movie that 20 and 30 year olds are going to watch with their friends with cocktails or they're going to re- watch with their kids and introduce them to this kind yeah. of movie. Two, it is not the type of movie. And, uh, you know, we kind of I kind of know this from people inside, but also just based on data. There's that is not the type of movie that travels. That travelability score of that movie is far lower than something like even a turning red. So two, that movie is not going to have the same thing abroad. And three, why would you not use that go leading up to launching into your advertising tier to show advertisers that people are engaged with the with, with your app and they are going to watch things over and over again and you have those great great headlines that are breaking Nielsen numbers one two three it is the quintessential so I, I argue it is the quintessential Disney Plus movie because if you would make maybe you find twenty million dollars in revenue in the United States on it maybe right for Disney that's I mean it's not nothing but it's like loose change to Disney versus. The amount that you might be able to put in, the amount of value you might get from putting that movie on Disney Plus 
and what it might do over the next three to four months in terms of subscriber growth and keeping subscribers engaged with and advertisers are happy and lowering churn is far more valuable, especially when you have the street looking at your balance sheet and being like, what is happening with streaming? So that's kind of my argument is like there are certain movies and I'm going to say this because everyone gets mad at me and I'm going to say this. 90, I believe 95% of movies should go to theaters first. All the data that we have shows that if a movie goes to theaters first and then ends up on streaming services 45 to 80 days afterwards, the movie performs better on streaming if it has a theatrical component. But there are 5% of movies that we would call direct-to-DVD movies back in the day, and that right. is what Hocus Pocus 2 is. It is a direct-to-DVD movie that that was made famous by, drumroll, Bob Chapek back in the day. Like, that was his huh. whole thing. So it's, of course, no surprise that he was like, this is the type of movie we'd put on DVD. We no longer care about our DVD business. We care about this business. Let's just put it on, on Disney+. Plus. And you have people like Sean Bailey going like, yeah, that makes sense to us. And then we can focus on, guess what does really well in theaters? Wakanda Forever and Avatar 2. And like, right. it that so to me, it just makes a ton of sense. And I'm getting riled up because all the exhibitors got mad at me. And I was like, <laughs> Regal, nobody was going to come out to this and watch it in theaters. I promise right. you. Now, and you, you talked about the window there before it moves to streaming. And so I want to, uh, and this isn't in our notes, but I'm going to segue into it. I can go, I can drive over to my local movie theater in a couple of hours and see Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, the Knives Out sequel, at my local movie theater, but it'll also be, I can also not go there. Follow me here. I cannot go there. And in eight days, watch it in my pajamas on my couch because it's a Netflix movie. So what's the calculus there, right? Because my wife and I had this conversation right. where she's like, oh yeah, Knives Out, uh, uh, you know, we loved it. Uh, it's also a nice memory for us. It was literally the last movie we saw before the pandemic. Uh, we saw it with our son on New Year's Eve. He liked it, and he's a grumpy teenager, so the fact that he liked it was really nice, too. So we have some happy memories about going to the movie theater. And she's like, she's like, oh, we should do that. And I said to her, yeah, we probably should. Or we can just wait a week and a half and <laughs> or... watch it on Netflix at home. <laughs> and And I thought, well, I am on the horns of the downstream dilemma here, right? Which is, wh- so what do you think about this? This is Because it is Netflix saying, yes, theatrical. And part of that is probably, yes, Ryan Johnson, we'll, we'll release your movie in theaters because, you know, we want to make the director happy and all of that. But the fact is, it's just hanging right out there. Glass Onion's going to be on Netflix on the 23rd. Yeah. So what does it mean? So from what I know, talking to friends of friends, people who know things in the industry, you talk to people, Ryan Johnson did push pretty hard for this. He wanted some form of a theatrical release. But two, I mean, there are a lot of directors who push hard for a theatrical release. Netflix doesn't always give it to them. You know, if their name kind of rhymes with Farfin Forsese, they may. They may <laughs> be like, sure, you, we'll give you your movie because we want to work with you. But, you know, Ryan Johnson, I love him very much, not a Martin Scorsese. And so when we look at Knives Out, okay, why does this movie that Netflix spent $500 million on basically between this and uh, another one, um, why why does this movie go to theaters for one week? One, it help, makes Ryan and the cast feel good. That's awesome. Two, it helps with Oscar eligibility. And I've heard people who've seen it say that it's got best Oscar contention uh, a, a, a possibility. Best I, which picture? I, which, yeah, sorry, best picture. Yeah, I would say best Oscar. Best picture, which is the best Oscar, but best picture, um, uh, they think it's a contender. And three, most importantly, the buzz that comes from that movie coming out over Thanksgiving weekend and people who have friends who have seen it and their friends are like, man, you got to watch this. You know what? You know what? When that movie comes out, let's watch it on Netflix. That is not what Netflix can't buy. Netflix can't buy that like, hey, for three weeks, 
We're going to have people who have seen it and love it and are talking to their friends about it who say, hey, I'll watch it with you on Netflix. Let's have a night. Let's do a night, uh, you know, during over the holidays. Families who are saying, hey, I've heard this movie is really good. People who've gone to see it and said we should watch it. We're going to really do that. And three, people who hear good reviews, watch it and then say, OK, when that movie comes out, I really want to see it. That helps Netflix create buzz in a way that pure marketing and just dropping it at Netflix by itself wouldn't do. And and it's because it's not like a Noah Baumbach or um, Alejandro Inaruto movie, which are great, who are great directors, but it's, you know, like film bro-y type thing. It's like, no, this is Ryan Johnson with a sequel to one of the biggest movies of what was that, 2019? 2020? Yeah, 2019, yeah. Yeah, 2019, like to one of the biggest movies of 2019 with a star-studded cast that's got all this great buzz. Netflix is playing its cards and it's right. just the right amount of time to keep that in conversation before it drops. So, but what I think is a bigger part of this conversation, Jason, I think you said it with your, about when you're talking about you and your wife and you're, you're talking about whether you go see the movie or not with your son, is exactly the issue that all these companies that have major theatrical components are going to run into, which is you've trained your audience. You've mm-hmm. trained the audience to now expect this to be here. Now, if you're, you know, uh, an A24, well, not A24, A24 goes to theaters, but like, let's say you're Netflix, you're training your audience to kind of expect things to be on the streaming service. Great. Like that's the core business. And if you're Disney, you're not too worried because you know that you've trained the Marvel audience, the Star Wars audience, and the big audience, which you've kind of trained already to expect it to be in theaters. They're going to be in theaters. They're going to go no matter what. But if you're a Paramount, if you're a Universal, it's a dangerous road, like line to walk because not Paramount does not have a Top Gun Maverick every year. They don't have a Top Gun Maverick every decade. So the vast majority of movies that you're putting out, you're really hoping that people are like, I'm going to go see this movie because if I don't, I know it's going to be on Peacock in 40 days. And so where they've really seen success is horror, right? Like Paramount has Smile and that movie did really well in theaters and Disney had um, Barbarian and that movie did really well in theaters. And so horror's kind of had this moment. Nope did really well for Universal, like like all those types of films. But for the vast majority, a lot of these films are going to be movies that people are like, ah, eh, like I know it's going to be here in 40 days. So why go out? Like I would rather go watch Avatar 2 for a third time, like whatever right. it might be. That is something that, they really have to be careful about. I got the dates wrong, by the way, so I'm just going to correct myself here. It's actually showing November 23rd for a week, so I can yes. go next week and see it, uh, or I can wait until uh, a couple days before Christmas and watch it on Netflix. So that's the trick, is you get that week where it's in theaters, and then it's gone. And honestly, knowing that it's going to be a month after that before it's in theaters, maybe we will go see it next week. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. But it is, it's an interesting calculation that everybody's making. And you're right. Yeah. Um, everybody's different. We got um, tickets. As well. yeah. we, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. All right. We have more to talk about here, but we also have a sponsor. So I'm going <gasps> to tell you about our sponsor now. Uh, this episode of Downstream is brought to you by Masterclass. Masterclass lets you learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. With over 180 classes from a range of world-class instructors, that thing you've always wanted to do is closer than you think. For example, you might want to timely discover the art of business strategy with bob Iger, the you know the good bob question mark uh learn about uh entrepreneurship from richard branson he's a character uh or yeah you can have fun uh you know cooking with gordon ramsay or making viral videos with mkbhd himself marcus brownlee um I did a uh, a masterclass uh, course with uh, Neil Gaiman about storytelling. That was really awesome. That was one of the one of the the samples that I uh, that I looked at. Um, you know, th- this is what's really fun about this is these these classes are uh, from people who 
you, they're getting them to sit down and talk about their experience and their knowledge in a a way that is i think it's incredibly entertaining and informative um and so i, I think it's totally uh uh, if there's a person that you want to hear from, like to get them in a setting, like Bob Iger is a great example. Like I, we, t- we know about Bob Iger and we see him and we talk about him and all those things, but it's a different thing when he's put in a context by masterclass to sit down and sort of like he organizes his thoughts and talks about what he wants to uh, present about how he has learned and grown as an executive. I think that's really interesting. It is a context you're not going to get anywhere else so you should definitely check it out this holiday you can give one annual membership and get one yourself for free so it's the gift that keeps on giving quite literally go to masterclass.com slash downstream now that's masterclass.com slash downstream thank you to masterclass for supporting this show and all of relay fm we should touch on warner brothers discovery at least briefly um they uh their subscriber growth was not as good but combined they're up about 2.8 million subscribers they're going to combine their services they move that date up the the discovery and hbo max combination is going to happen they say now spring of 23 they had previously said summer and then there was a lot of uh examples of basically the no 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 we have a plan really kind of a uh, uh statements from david zaslav including uh, a desire to lean into franchises. And he mentioned DC Comics, Lord of the Rings movies, and Harry Potter. And uh, also uh, the line that has been going around that I thought uh, made me giggle is we're not going to do four Batmans, which of course was the plan a few years ago. You had a very nice Less Twitter thread on that. Less than two years ago. Today. Yeah, two years ago. <laughs> four Batmans, two years. Uh, <laughs> and they're like, oh, we're going to do a 10-year plan. But it is, as you pointed out, I think, sort of reminiscent. I was thinking of the uh, like the Soviet five-year plan where it's like every every year there's a new five-year plan. It's like, well, that's not a five-year plan then. Um what what are your takeaways about where Warner Brothers Discovery is right now? <laughs> Here's my mm-hmm. thing about WBD. Heavy sigh. Here's the thing about WBD because I really really love a lot of the people who work there, and I think there's a lot of very talented people who work there. I think <laughs> I, I'm not going to really get into the earnings. It's really hard to break down their earnings because they've combined HBO Max and Discovery Plus, so it's hard. I, I imagine most of that growth is coming from HBO Max. But it's hard to be like, oh, here's where it's all coming from. And they also have other like AVOD and um, SVOD and digital related things. So it just gets hard to, to talk about their streaming services um, from a growth perspective and from a revenue perspective. The revenue is decent. It's better than uh, some other companies. Um, but what I will say, uh, and of course, the biggest thing with them is like their EBITDA, right? It's like their earnings before interest um, and everything else like uh, <laughs> is how I roll up EBITDA. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it's what is the health of that company? Like, it's not great the health of that company is not great. It won't be for another year at at minimum. But I want to focus on one thing because it ties into another aspect of what we're going to talk about, but I think we can combine them. I think it it's it makes me laugh and cry. It's the ludicrous nature of being like, yeah, don't worry. We're going to fix DC and Harry Potter. No problem. We've got a whole plan about this thing. And it's like as if people have not been trying to do this for like a decade, as if people have been trying to be like, hey, man, mm-hmm. fixing harry potter first of all requires working with jk rowling and like that's an issue because she doesn't necessarily want to do stuff like that's an issue from ten thousand for ten thousand reasons but like if you even if you take apart her like absolutely disgusting transphobic views which are very very uh apparent um even just going from like to a business perspective working with one person 
And her business partner, who don't seem to have much interest in kind of pursuing additional films or television shows, makes doing anything, and she has final say over it, makes doing anything within that sphere extremely difficult. Two, trying to, like, expand. So um, my coworker, my colleague at Puck, Matt Bellany, wrote this really great piece about, like, what's going on with Harry Potter. And he had a note in there, a bit of news, that they really want to work on adapting Curse of Child. Like, they really want to bring Curse of Child into a film. Which is like cool, like for people who haven't, and cool in a very sarcastic way. Like people who haven't read or seen Curse of Child, it is effectively fan fiction. It is a story about Draco's son and Harry's son, their youngest son, Scorpius and Albus, who go back in time to like save Cedric Diggory and then end up having to fight Voldemort's daughter. And if that sounds somewhat familiar, it's because it's like making Rey a Palpatine in Star Wars. It, 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 mm. it is very much like, oh my God, like one's a Skywalker, one's a Palpatine, like we're going to go and do this thing. And so the whole idea. Uh, and so this thing works as a play because the theatrics are stunning. If you ever, yeah. ever in New York or London, you want to see it, it's a great, great play. It the is. The storyline. I, I, I saw it in London and like, how you do, how do you stage magic? And it's like, well, they do it. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. But you're right. It is, it is literally, it's metafiction, right? Because it's, it's, it's not terrible. even a sequel where it's like, oh, what trouble no. are the kids going to get into? Because in the end, what the trouble the kids get into in is going back in time to the events of the Harry Potter books, at which yes. point it is not it is not new. It is just completely recursive. Yeah. And, and, and so and so this is the thing. So their whole thing for the film universe is they're going to be stuck in the same situation. The Star Wars is stuck in where Lucas yeah. is stuck in where they're like, how do we make movies that are not Skywalker related for a new generation? That kind of makes sense. So I get to an extent where they're like, well, they're younger. It's a new generation. But to Jason's point, they go back in time. It's like it's like you're just you're like you're tying it to a nostalgia thing that it doesn't move a franchise forward. It just kind of maybe generates some revenue. It's a it's a it's a quick plan for like it's short term gain for, sh- for short term pain. It's like we can just do this really quick thing. The way you build out that franchise is by leaning on a Casey Bloys and figuring out like how do we make a prestige type Harry Potter show that is similar yep. to what Andor is doing for Star Wars. Yep. That is like hey move this forward, make people appreciate that this is not just you know, this type of thing. Like, how do we do that? And then on the film side, how do we find a way to expand upon character? Because the thing about Fantastic Beasts is like, the thing about those movies is they're not bad because there's no action or like whatever it is. They're bad because the character development isn't there. Like it's poor character. And like, you don't, it doesn't, it's not interesting. And so it's like the way that they want to fix franchise, one, doesn't make sense. But two, I just think listening to him on the earnings call say like, we're going to lean on DC and Harry Potter as if Warner Brothers hasn't been trying to do that. Like, as yeah. if they're not hyper aware of this already. Doesn't make sense. And then I was talking to someone, a uh, former executive at one of these companies, and he said to me, he said, the, the thing that no one's talking about is that the Lord of the Rings situation is even worse than anyone really kind of expected to be because, like, the estate doesn't want to work with Peter Jackson. And Peter Jackson is, like, very tied into New Line Cinema, which is Warner Brothers, like, there's a whole situation with those rights that Warner Brothers technically has some of them too, but they don't really know what to do with it and they don't know what they can do with it. And the estate still has all this control. So all their major franchises that um, Zaslav talks about have core issues. Like what yeah. does DC not have? I mean, they're trying to replace this with James Gunn, but they don't have a Kevin Feige. And more importantly, they don't have time. They don't have the 2008 to 2019 moment that Kevin Feige had. What does Harry Potter have? You have, you have J.K. Rowling, who's an issue in and of, it, of herself. And also that she controls all this creative development, what happens that you can't have executives do anything. That's another issue. And Lord of the Rings has estate issues. So all of these major franchises are not just simple, like, yeah, no problem. We're going to fix it with a 10-year plan. It's like 
there's core, core problems. And if that is your solution to Wall Street, that we're going to, this is how we're going to fix our, our movie company and our, our streaming company and our entertainment company. When you have people like myself and Jason who know these things because we read about them because we talked, like, which means that the street knows about these things. That's not a way to guide your company out of this, this moment. And I just think, take that analogy, apply it to other sectors. And it's, and it's, you know, it's like, it doesn't work. You can't just say we're yeah. going to make DC work. It's like, how? Yeah, it's like, no, no, no. But we're going to do it this time. This time for sure, because it's us now and we're better. And that is not a convincing argument to make that that just because this was complicated in the past and we're just going to repeat it. But but we'll just roll in here and figure it out because we're great is not uh, convincing either. Yeah, yeah. I, had the, I had the same reaction. Uh, yeah, the Lord of the Rings is a mess. Harry Potter is a mess on multiple <laughs> levels, as we've talked about. Not only uh, Matt Bellamy's piece refers to her as semi-canceled, which made me laugh out loud. It's like, I mean, okay, sure. A lot of people really don't like her um, because of her views and uh, they are they are bad. They're, they're awful views, right? But also, she's terrible to work with because she wants complete control over everything. And Matt's piece points out like, the only way they got the Fantastic Beast series to be made was that they let a first-time screenwriter, J.K. Rowling, write the screenplays for that. Because, and how did that go? <laughs> uh, and how did that go? Exactly right. And so, and she's got all the money, and she and everything goes through her and her agent or her lawyer. And so, like it. It seems to me to be an intractable problem. And I get that if you are Warner Brothers Discovery, you've got to try. Mm. But it is, you know, that is, even if she wasn't a problematic person, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. she has complete control over that stuff and has no motivation, right? She has so much money. She doesn't really need more projects based on her stuff. And how the other thing, too, about this is like, if you wanted to really tap into a family. Okay, so there's two issues here, right? We talked about this in the podcast a lot. Like, there's one which is growing the franchise, and that's a very difficult thing. I, I tweeted about this in a thread, and part of the things that you do is you change format, medium, or if you're talking about a game, like gameplay mechanic, but you don't change the overarching um, tenure arc of what you're trying to do. So, for example, Zelda games may change the gameplay mechanic, but it's a Zelda game at its core, right? Like, like Pokemon games change gameplay mechanics, but they're Pokemon games that incorporate the same characters, same worlds. If we look at film and television, you have like Marvel, right? Where She-Hulk takes advantage of a different format, a different genre, a different medium, but it plays into the same universe that exists on film. Like that, it's it's figuring that out for new generations. And so what you often do is introduce younger characters or fresh takes on characters so mm. that people of the younger generations feel like it's their version of that character. So with Harry Potter, the options they have at their hands are they could redo the Harry Potter movies. It's a bad move across the board for everyone involved. Terrible idea. Uh, terrible idea. Two... They could focus on younger characters. And so in their minds, they're like, cool, we'll go with Harry and Draco's kids and it ties into the universe. But you get into the Skywalker moment. Three, which is my recommendation, is you go the Niantic route where you re you create new characters, set them within Hogwarts, give a yeah. new generation six more movies. That's new characters that, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it's, it's super easy to make lovable characters again, but you spend time developing that and then you use TV shows to branch that out. And the other thing I'll say, the fact that we have not gotten, I get that, the, I imagine that they've talked about this and this comes back to rallying because I imagine they've brought this up. The fact that we don't have an HBO Max from the HBO studio, kind of overseen by Casey's teams, that are doing a, a, a Marauder series on like Sirius Black and James and, and Snape and the rise of Voldemort is insane. Right. It is like the easiest thing out there. It's like people know these characters. 
they're still fresh characters for new generation and you can make premium television what what is that that's basically a story about the rise of fascism like that's it that's an easy or not easy but like that's an like it's just it boggles my mind and the only thing i can think of is they she won't do it right i don't i don't entirely agree with you i actually think that the marauders would work better as movies and that the uh hogwarts tv series would be better and do it do it the other way around but either way i think the answer ultimately is that everybody has tried this except david zaslav so he'll try it now and and she's not interested right or her demands are too high and like because very clearly yeah these are ideas that would work that would be a good use for the intellectual property and and Honestly, today to have some showrunner do it who is not connected to her at all, but it's just sort of like from Warner Brothers and it's based on that world, but it's somebody new. That would be one way for them to also have her at arm's length. But the thing is, she's not interested in being at arm's length if she's interested at all. So again, like we can have all the ideas in the world, but I think the the truth is that Warner Brothers Discovery has a great piece of intellectual property that they can't great piece use. And I think they can't they- use. And Jason and I, I clearly can tell from like us, our big Harry Potter fans, like we would love to see them succeed here. Like we, like we are, like sure. we are rooting for them. And I will say this, and I think this is maybe a little controversial, but I also think it's accurate. And although there are a ton of people who have issues with Rowling, I am one of them, um, or no issues with I have issues with their views. Um, I don't think that alone would stop people from going to see movies or watch TV shows. And so it's not like they're saying we've lost out on this huge potential business opportunity because of one person like i i, I think the, the the reality is i think a lot of people still would go watch movies yeah. and go watch some, tv shows some people and, wouldn't some people some people would say if, if she's getting money if she's involved of in course. any way and she would be then we're not going to go but i think that yes i think that the reality is is if they came out with new harry potter movies most people would go and would not really or they're only vaguely aware about her details so they'd be like well i'm going to do, do it anyway because i love this intellectual property and, and that's but, and that's the thing and the issue is not like so so it's like i've heard a lot of people say the issue is purely rowling's views and i think that's to to jason's exact point i think that is a really that is a thing that turns a lot of some people away and that's great like that we have the option to say i'm not going to support this with giving you money like awesome but i do think the bigger <laughs> issue with this is like the ideas are bad. It's it's yeah. just like like yeah. like Fantastic Beast just doesn't work because it's a bad but, trilogy. This is the so good news for people who don't like J.K. Rowling is she's also not only are her views, uh, I would say awful, but uh, she's terrible to work with. And so it sounds like in the end you're not going to have to choose. Do I love Harry Potter enough to go see or watch something on TV that? is um that that is going to give put money in her pocket because i don't think she's ever going to let them make it (laughs) so here we are like what do you how do you convince somebody with your truck of money that you back up to their house if she has a castle full of money like she doesn't need the money and it just it just breaks my heart because i love harry potter i love that franchise that franchise like for a lot of people i know feel similarly my age that franchise did a lot for me. The fan fiction that I still read is 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 still a big part of what I do, and, and those the amazing writers who have taken those characters kind of back, like, and it's just, and, and I love DC, but it's just heartbreaking because it's like I don't think Marvel's the be end all, but it's like you can see that when you have a leader with one coherent vision that's given the opportunity to to, and that's the thing about DC and 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 HP both, what we're talking or or DC rather by itself, 
what we're talking about is not that they haven't had a leader in place. They've had Walter Hamada. They had Jeff Johns. They had people who were there. They didn't have enough time to execute a vision. The closest we got was um, Zack Snyder, like who had a vision and was given four or five movies, I think four movies, to like do what he was going to do. And whether you liked yeah. them or not, at least it was like one guy, one vision for universe. And they yep. said, this isn't working for us. We're going to pivot, which is fine. Like they're allowed to say that. But then since that, you've had two like companies come in, buy their companies, leaders get like they don't have time to execute and franchises, whether it's Harry Potter, whether it's DC, take a decade to plan. It is like, what are we doing across all these mediums and formats to make sure that we really built this thing out? And I really hope that they figure out Harry Potter and DC because I love, love, love those those franchises. I think they're incredibly worthwhile IP to develop. And it's just like there's all these hurdles that does not make it easy by any means. I think DC, they're, they're going to take a crack at it, but it, it's a tough one. And and Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, I think they're, they're going to find that they're untenable. But yeah. we'll see. Uh, before we go, I want to do a couple um, letters from listeners real quick. Um, first is from Sam, who wrote in, it might be interesting to talk about the complexity the World Cup, which is mm. about to start, will bring for streaming. Uh, and Sam's point here is that there is 4K coverage of this, but of course, 4K the 4K rollout in terms of broadcast and cable and streaming and all of that is kind of a mess. And there's like different HDR standards and what apps support what standards for that and 4k and does your service support the 4k channel that it's going to have or not. And some do and some don't. Um, what I would say to Sam is that this is actually kind of just the sequel to our Olympics conversation because the Olympics also provided, right? We were, oh, all of these big global sporting events are like, we're, it's the future of television, right? And if there's a new television technology, they show it off there. So 4K HDR, I've heard from, uh, from other people that they're all working on high frame rate stuff because the, you do high frame rate and, and then your brain like process it like you're looking through a window instead of watching it on a TV and that's really interesting um, but the fact is yeah 4K and HDR stuff right now in on TV is a mess and so I'm not sure well, well let's watch it as it goes but like I have I have Fubo so I have Fox 4K mm-hmm. where they do a couple of sporting events on that channel i imagine their world cup coverage will be in 4k on that channel but it is a question of like do you are you getting the whole thing does your hardware support it or does your service have that if you just have regular cable do you have a box that even supports 4k and if you do do they have a channel for it and like it is it's really like the early days of hdtv and i feel like now that we're in a streaming world that it's going to get better uh faster but they're not there yet uh, sports Matt, corner. Yeah, that was a mini sports <laughs> corner. I actually we bumped a sports corner thing that we're going to talk about Apple and MLS. We've got time. We're going to do that next time. Uh, Matt wrote in and said, "What do you make of Disney putting Andor on the first couple episodes on FX, Hulu, and ABC?" I'm not sure I've ever seen the mouse use all its platforms. Well, it's not on ESPN, but you know, all, most of its platforms to air a single show before. Uh, what? Yeah. What do you think about that move? They're like putting uh, episodes of Andor in other places to try to get people yeah. uh, interested in it. They've they've done this before. Um, and this is like a, a, a very, very used strategy across all these companies that have broadcast channels and then the streaming services. The thing about one, I think it's great. I think they're capitalizing on all the buzz about Andor and they're kind of like, okay, like let's bring this to an older audience who might not have Disney Plus but are interested in Star Wars. Although I don't know what that percentage of audience would be. 
Um, and so they, they might be into this, or maybe they're not interested in Star Wars per se, but they hear that this is not the most Star Wars, Star Wars show. And so they watch it. But the issue with Andor, and I really love Andor, is like the first two episodes are not necessarily the most captivating. Right. And so you're kind of like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not like you're putting out a movie and you're like, okay, people are either going to really like this or they're not. They're going to be into it. And their hope is that they'll watch those two episodes. And like one, people might come in and subscribe. And then two, they can place like ads across it, right? Like they can kind of be like, hey, we're going to put ads on this thing on this channel and you could, and or we're going to put and or on it. We're going to big Star Wars thing. And so like I get the business decision to do it. But I'm also like, this is not the show I would have done it with. It's, it would be like putting out WandaVision's first two episodes. Remember the black and white ones? It'd be like putting those out on streaming and or sorry, on, on the channels and being like, here's the show. And and people's takeaway would be like, is it black and white? Like, is this the show? And without the, with, you know what I mean? There's not, I, like, it, it just for me, I feel like it's a great idea, potentially wrong show. Like, I think this actually would have made more sense for obi-wan but i also think people who are interested in obi-wan have star like disney plus like that that is that is there people who might be interested in a show like andor may not have disney plus it's like a great sci-fi show like it's not a star wars show it's a great sci-fi show and that might be something that appeals to like an extra five percent of non-disney plus subscribers who come on to finish watching andor and then like they run into the same issue that happens with Hamilton, which is like, what else is there for them what to else watch? Is there, yeah. But I mean, you know, it's th- like this strategy is used time and time again. It's used by Paramount. It's used by NBC Universal. It is like the most used thing in the world. And Netflix should have been using something similar to it by launching or by joining a fast channel and launching uh, or a net- fast network and joy and launching a Netflix channel. It's something they should have done. But right. I digress. No, yeah, we'll get there. All right. If you have a question for us, you can email us downstream at relay.fm or just send a message if you're a Relay FM uh, member in the members discord by doing question mark ask downstream. Uh, love to your mothers. We appreciate it. You can find our director of strategy, Julia. She's on Twitter for now, as long as Twitter stays up at loudmouthjulia <laughs> and paradanalytics.com. Of course, you can find me at jsnell on Twitter as long as Twitter stays up and at sixcolors.com, a server I control and that will stay up. Um, but that's it for now. Until next time, Julia, it's been a pleasure as always. Have a great one. Bye, everybody.